Good morning, welcome to episode 21 of Straight Talking English, the Simon Armitage double bill, in which I am tackling Mother Any Distance and Remains. Let me first introduce you to our poet, as well as myself. My name is Catherine, I am your host for today, as ever. Big shout out to my new Spotify followers. Hi new Spotify people, how's it going? And a big props to everyone else new who's following me on Twitter because for some reason my Twitter following has expanded by like 35% since I recorded the last one. So hi peeps. We are of course talking about, actually our poet Simon Armitage is born in 1962, making him about the same age as my dad, which I always find kind of funny. He is born in Huddersfield, North Yorkshire. I am really, really bad at accents, or Huddersfield. And Mother Any Distance, at least his first poem that we're covering today, came out in 1993 in a poem called Matchbook. The idea was that each poem was short enough that you could read it in the time it would take to light a match. He's actually quite a cool character. We think of Simon Armitage as being like this old random dude who showed up on the anthology, but actually it wasn't always like that. In 1989, according to The Guardian, he burst onto the scene, this po probation officer from Huddersfield with spiky hair, an earring and a leather jacket. What? He's like the poetry equivalent of someone like Billy Bragg or Alexi Sale, who when they first arrived was quite like controversial bit out there and has now got this like establishment kind of acceptance though he did lose out on the laureate to Carol Ann Duffy as I've mentioned the job of poet laureate is up for grabs later this year could it be Armitage it well could be actually my bets would actually be on him to be honest or Zephaniah or Agard one of the Caribbean poets but anyway, place your bets now. He is described by The Independent as having a dry Yorkshire wit with an accessible realist style and critical seriousness. Which means, in other words, it's always going to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also quite serious and about his real life. I was researching this and he's got this anecdote about the mum. And he says, on Saturday, my mum asked me if I'd opened the village Christmas fair back in the parochial hall in Marsden. It was the hardest gig of the year because I couldn't come it. I've always been in my head a kind of son. I think I'm quite boyish in my attitude and outlook. I used to think that just to do with the fact that when I started writing, I was young in relation to the poetry scene, but I'm not anymore. So I started to think of it as a state of mind, but a personality type. He's actually done a lot of stuff with his life. Filmmaker, wrote an opera, translates things, did this translation of Gawain and the Green Knight like a medieval text. The guy has done it all. But first up we're going to look at Mother Any Distance, then I'll have a little chat about Remains, then I'll look at Remains. So feel free to skip like halfway if you're doing Power and Conflict. Or just listen to the first bit if you're doing love and relationships. Or listen to it all and enjoy Armitage. So first up, let's hear his reading. This next poem uh, doesn't have a title. It just begins with the line, Mother, any distance greater than a single span. This is another poem about, about leaving home, about moving on. It's, I guess it's a rite of passage poem. And I'm remembering that when I left home, I only got about six doors down the road to a rented house. And my mum followed me down the road 
And she'd come along to help me measure up for carpets and curtains and things like that. And she brought a, a tape measure with her. And I'd gone up into the top of the house to open a, a skylight. This is a, a window up in the, up in the roof space. And that, the house was rented and I just wanted to let some air and some light into it. And I'd taken the tape measure with me, or at least I'd taken one end of it. Because when I looked back down through the stairwell, my mum was stood at the bottom holding on to the other end, as if I was sort of tethered to her. So I'm just trying to position myself here, right on that very moment, on, on the very ledge of my life, where I'm about to launch off on my own, and I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm going to make a success of myself, or, or whether I'm just going to sort of fall flat on my face. Mother, any distance greater than a single span requires a second pair of hands. You come to help me measure windows, pelmets, doors, the acres of the walls, the prairies of the floors. You at the zero end, me with the spool of tape, recording length, reporting meters, centimeters back to base, then leaving up the stairs, the line still feeding out, unreeling years between us. Anchor, kite. I spacewalk through the empty bedrooms, climb the ladder to the loft to breaking point where something has to give. Two floors below your fingertips still pinch, the last one hundredth of an inch. I reach towards a hatch that opens on an endless sky to fall or fly. Yeah, I do really like it when they explain the poems. Not gonna lie, it makes my life. A lot easier. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. First up, why call her mother? Like, I call my mum mum, like, or ma'am, or mom, or, you know, you know, it's very formal. It indicates this distance, it indicates it's ready to move on. Because any distance greater than a single span requires a second pair of hands. Even though he's ready to move on, it acknowledges that he does need someone. He uses a simple present form. You come to help me measure windows, pelmets, doors, the acres of the walls, the prairies of the floors. Like simple present. Think when someone's first learning English or when you're a kid. Like... You're here, right now, this is the present, the moment that he's trying to capture. His mum is practical and domestic. We've got this list of windows, pelmets, doors. We know that list form indicates things that are happening sequentially or simultaneously. So is it a sense that everything is kind of happening at once? Like his mum's busying herself around? Or is it like one by one by one by one, the order of him moving out? I mentioned the kid thing because the rhythm of this poem is really interesting. Every, uh, the first syllable in every word is stressed. Mother, any distance greater than a single span. It's called a trochee, T-R-O-C-H-E-E, is what we use in nursery rhymes as well. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. It gives this like 
harmonious quality, childish, rhythmic, sing-song, it's quite gentle. There's an internal rhythm, eternal, yeah, internal rhyme and rhythm in each line, but it kind of, like, it starts off with clear rhymes at the beginning, and then it dissolves. So span hands, doors, floors, ing, 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 then nothing until the final two lines. This connection, this organisation is dissolving. It's really cool. It's symbolising how he's ready to leave. Like the whole thing here is metaphors within metaphors within metaphors within metaphors. The acres of the walls, the prairies of the floor. We've got this like wild west kind of vibe, like he's on this great journey out west to find himself. Uncharted territory. He might be a bit nervous to be honest, it's a bit huge, like it'll phase you, but he's ready. Like the second stanza, the tense changes. It goes from simple present to present continuous. Like reporting, leaving, feeding, unreeling. So these are actions which are continuing. It gives the sense that we've moved on from a still moment to a point of action. Zero end. She's the beginning. She's the originator of everything. She's the base. She's the support. The metaphor of the astronaut is kind of established here. But it's like, as I said, metaphors within metaphors. Metaphorception, my days. The tape is what's tethering the astronaut. That's referred to as an umbilical, umbilical unborn baby to mother, connection with mother. Like it goes around itself, like so much. He goes up the stairs. He's trying to be more bold, but the line is still feeding out and unreeling. So even when he's being more bold, he's still got this connection. The years between us. He's aware that when he's moved out, this is going to be permanent. It's the first time he's away from home. Though, as I worked it out, this book was published 31 years after he was born. Did he move out when he was 31? There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm 31 and I'd be going mad if I'd lived at home the whole time. I mean, I love my family, but we got some questions here. Like, the enjambment in recording length, blah, 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 leaving up the stairs, unreeling years between us. It's supporting the image of the flowing tape. The tape's unreeling and it's supported through the arrangement and structure of this poem. Yet, anchor and kite are put aside as single words. We know single words draw attention to a single idea. If we're in year seven, we say, it creates tension. Like, people know what that means, because year sevens really don't, no matter how many times I've explained it. Anchor thing. Like, you might think an anchor's heavy, drags you down, stops the ship from sailing. But with this, like, quite light, comfortable tone, it sort of just sort of seems that he's being being supported, like saying, she's my rock. Again, the 
revision notes, which I work from sometimes, I say say that it's a restriction or a hindering. But I don't think that at all. We have got the juxtaposition with Kite. But I feel like it's two sides of the same coin. She's what's anchoring the Kite to the Earth. And he's the Kite, like, flying away, enjoying himself, but still with this drink that's keeping him safe of whether like a kite isn't meant to fly away like if he is the image of a hawk on a string then yeah that's fine but like i don't feel like it's as negative as some revision guides portray it as spacewalk oh that's a lovely verb like there's no gravity there's only this one thing keeping him safe it's still on this image of him as an explorer. After the Cezura with um, Anchor and Kai, we've gone back to this original image. We've got the breaking point. Something has to give. I, again, I don't think, I don't think it's as bad as people make out. Something has to give. Yeah, someone has to accept that things are going to change in their relationship and it's supported by the commas where everything is kind of like stretch 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 like list of these short clauses but it's ended with this semicolon used to show ideas which are intrinsically linked so they will always be linked together we've got the hash that symbolises, like, his freedom, his, like, not just his escape, but also, like, if he's an adult, if he's an astronaut, sorry, he is clearly an adult. If he's an astronaut, the point at which he's taking that step out to space wall. He said it was when he was moving away from home in the empty bedrooms. Like, it just shows how, like how unknown all this is he's gonna be building it i really want to say a little bit more about the form of this this poem then I, I told you i was tired of muddling up all my work everything else in this book of poems is a sonnet but this one kind of is kind of isn't a sonnet should have 14 lines iambic pentameter very very regular like essentially like prescribed structure and we've got our 14 lines, but then this little fall off line at the end. And we've got the extra because it kind of just gives us that final point of reflection. But also, it's breaking free from the sonnet form. Aha, see what he did there? Yes. Like the poem itself is representing his journey. I said it was quite harmonious. I said it was quite like you know quite chill it's because he uses the fricative consonant sounds oh my god i had to learn this right ch and f so like ch and f we make them just with our breath we don't use our lips ch f it's just breath and it makes it airy it makes it light it links back to this like the kite blowing away the hatch thing is interesting too because that is a um a pun birds hatch then they fly out of the nest 
Aha. See, it's like I said, it's layers within layers within layers of this one. The last line is what he wants us to, like, focus on. But the implication is through this building up of images of flight, we are confident that he will fly. Like, to fall or fly. Well, yeah, there is this, like... I don't know, maybe maybe this will mess up. But it probably won't. Probably won't. Like, he's ready to fly. Everything that's being presented is things that are ready to go. And it gives us this, like, really sweet, light optimism. I also think it's quite intimate in the sense that it's a scene that's presented only between the two of them. Yes, there's direct address. But it's clear the I and you are, like, it's just the two of them. We're there in this very personal moment. This is a poem that has actually quite a nice set of friends and partners associated with it, actually. To be honest, I reckon you could probably guess them (laughs) without even me saying it. But obviously I am going to say it. We've got walking away yeah it's from the upper end from the opposite end the dad letting his son walk away follower yeah wanting to not walk away but now he has and the dad's following him yeah distance with mums yeah before you were mine got it climbing my grandfather as well I'm gonna come to that that's actually on my list as being the last one in my series so I will come back to that anything that's like family letting go distance family family distance yeah like go for that So, that is the end of the nice Armitage. Bit of a good, the bad and the ugly kind of day. Let's do the less nice Armitage now, Remains. The reason I like Remains is, number one, if you read it in my accent, it's very, very plausible. If I really, really put on my accent, so I have quite a, I actually tone it down a little bit for talking to you. I've got naturally quite an East End because my dad is a genuine Cockney. If I really put on my accent, then it actually sounds like the right kind of person. The other reason I like this one is, so I used to have a client who was at Woolwich Library first thing in the morning, and there isn't really much to do in Woolwich first thing in the morning, so I'd go to Weatherspoons to have my breakfast, mostly because they got the unlimited coffee. And you get these old dudes who clearly had had a lot going on in their lives, who'd be in Spoons at like, 8am somehow getting a beer and they were pretty desperate for someone to talk to and like it wasn't a pleasant experience for me but I'm always quite tolerant of people who've had a lot of stuff in their life and it just reminds me of one of those kind of dudes like the 9 8 9am weatherspoons people i'm going to play you a clip from the documentary that inspired armitage because he was making this documentary about veterans hearing their stories and wrote this poem the guy talks a little bit at the start about what life is like at war and then he reads the poem so see if you agree with me that he is an 8am weatherspoons dude On the outside, I acted cool, calm, which is pretty much what every one of us was doing. But on the inside, 
you're frightened. It's not a nice place to be. And I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally. It's hard to put into words. You're in constant fear of your life, that's... I think that's why I... I got into so much trouble when I got back. Because I was in the mind frame of, well, just come back from a place where everyone wants me dead. So to, so to die around there wouldn't be such a bad thing. I was born just before the Falklands War. Uh, that's probably why I, I, I'd like to have been a soldier. So much seeing all the trips coming back to the era of celebrations and that. I don't suppose I looked in too much depth, but you used to see what the media would show you, and it it all looked good. We crossed the border into Iraq and we made our way slowly but surely towards Basra. I was in a section, seven people in the back of a warrior. You drive with the warrior, the gunner and the commander. And I was machine gunner, first one out the back of the warrior. For the first couple of weeks, we sort of formed a ring of steel around Basra. And the, the mortars was raining in on us, airily. The first one would land, you'd get in a ditch or anything. And you'd see, say, 50 metres away, the next one would land. 30 metres away, the next one would land. 15 metres away, you'd think, carries on like this, the next one's on my head. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a car crash or you've been mugged and you get that feeling for that split second when the butterflies are going and everything, where you don't know what's going to happen to you. If you can imagine that feeling 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's what it felt like to be out there. On another occasion, we get sent out to tackle looters raiding a bank. And one of them legs it up the road, probably armed, possibly not. Well, myself and somebody else and somebody else are all of the same mind. So all three of us open fire, three of a kind, let him fly. And I swear, I see every round as it rips through his life. I see broad daylight on the other side. In, in total, I think 
it took 12 rounds and I, I can still to this day remember as every round passed through and he was lying there with his insides basically on the floor and we had to leave him clear the bank and he was uh, approximately four storeys high four or five storeys and we cleared the entire of the bank got to the roof I looked over the bloke was still there crying in agony we come back down and uh, another lad who was in my section literally picked his insides up dropped them back into his body and he was uh, he was just chucked into the back of the warrior never to be seen again so we've hit this looter a dozen times and he's there on the ground sort of inside out writhing in pain screaming in agony end of story except not really his blood shadow stays on the street and out on patrol who walk right over him week after week that's the first time I I'd ever ended someone's life. I didn't have time to think. It was over in seconds, like, done. But to this day, there ain't a day that goes by that I don't go through that whole situation in my head. Then I'm home on leave, but I blink, and he bursts again through the door of the bank. Sleep and he's probably armed, possibly not. Dream, and he's torn apart by a dozen rounds, and the drink of the drugs won't flush him out. He's here in my head when I close my eyes, dug in behind enemy lines, not left for dead in some distant, sun-fucked Stone Age land, or six feet under in desert sand. But nearer the knuckle, here and now, his bloody life in my bloody hands. And the first person I spoke to about it was a probation officer. And he said to me, when you get back to the army, he said, tell them that you need some sorts of counselling and some help with your drink. And I got laughed out of the office. I was told, ah, fuck it, now you're going to go on a basket weaving course. So, you know what I mean? Take the piss out of me. I ain't going to ask for help again, am I? If you... Or you're going to get ridiculed. It isn't made clear what war this is taking place in, but through the idea of the desert and the fact that this poem was written in the early 90s, it's reasonable to me that this is a Gulf War veteran. Some places, and I'm really nervous of the uh, revision notes being quite prescriptive, is saying, oh, he's an Afghanistan veteran. Nah, mate, too early. Gulf is what we are talking about. We've got these four-line verses, which, honestly, is quite boring. But that's the point, suckered in. It's because it's a really boring way of putting really dramatic events which supports his matter-of-fact tone. Think about the title for a second. Remains. 
is it the remains of the looter that he's focusing on? Is it the remains that are stuck in our speaker's head? Or is it focusing on the remains of the speaker? Like, what is even left of his personality after all of this? Finishes on a nice little couplet. Again, if I was playing a drinking game every time a poet does something to do with Shakespeare, I, I would be wrecked. This is the second half and recording at 2pm. I've got work later. It would be a shambles. Shakespeare uses couplets to conclude. And it's kind of like the curtains drawing across the stage. That's the end of that. It is concluding the section of the narrative that we get. It could represent the fact that the looter's life is cut short. Like, that's the end of that story. Or it's all the soldiers willing to tell us. It's not the only time in the poem that there's a sense that the speaker is reticent. The speaker does not want to speak more. The first verse starts out quite nicely. We got sent out to a bank. Probably aren't, possibly not. Neat stopped lines. But it kind of breaks down. It kind of degrades into enjambment. Things go from being so nice and organised to being just kind of all over the place. As I said, it sounds like someone speaking. It's supposed to sound like someone speaking. We've got what's called a colloquial tone, which means he uses slang and speaks like a regular person. We've got the run-on lines, because we don't speak in the same way that we write. Okay, there's pauses when I'm speaking, but there's filler words, my sentences go on, I repeat myself, like, we stop halfway. That's how people actually speak. Well, I know that I'm not the most eloquent, but this is what Armitage is trying to do. We kind of aren't sure who we are in this. We are in a role, same as My Last Duchess. The role, again, I see myself in as being me, trying to have my bacon sandwich and prepare my notes for my uh, client. And the guy is just talking to me about things he's seen. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. Nice to meet you. Like, that's where I feel like I am. But there is almost like an intimacy. He's comfortable speaking to us. And it starts with on another occasion. So this is just a section of a longer dialogue. Are we a friend? Are we a therapist? Are we Armitage as an interviewer? Well, we're not sure, but there's an element of closeness in there the time shifts are interesting as well it starts chronological then it goes all over the place almost representing the dude's mind things are going like straightforward and then it all gets a little bit messed up and goes round in circles so on another occasion, yeah, anecdote, we get sent out to tackle looters raiding a bank. Right, immediately, so much to say. We were, we got sent out passive. Who sent them out? We don't know. We're assuming it's a commander, but we don't actually know. It shifts blame away. The passive is use, used to get rid of blame. Is there an implicit blame laid on whoever gave this order? Tackle. Like, we tackle in football. It's just like a game, isn't it? Oh, I've got to tackle the kitchen. It's quite calm. Also, the we, the inclusive we. It's not just him. He's taking the blame, but it's not just him. The possibly not 
is kind of an aside. Like, it undermines what he's saying. Implies the speaker's made this decision. But the we, the we have done it. Think about looting as well. It's not exactly a big deal. It's not like murdering grannies or like, I don't know, poisoning of something, poisoning chocolate. I don't, I don't know what big crimes are, to be honest. I can't really think of any. It's opportunistic as well. And people loot if they're desperate. Like, oh, there's an empty shop. I need some bread. I'm just going to nick it. It's petty. It's not a big deal. Well, myself and somebody else and somebody else, they're not actually named. They could be anybody. And he doesn't even know who they are, just like some people. But is it the speaker's reticent to say who they are? Does he want to take the blame? There's no comma between, well, it's just coming out in the stream, all of the same mind. Well, are you? Are you? Like, there's no clue that you were. You're just assuming, isn't it? We've got the trochees as well. If you've just tuned in for the second half, trochees or trochees are where the first part of each word is the stressed syllable. Well, myself and somebody else and somebody else are all of the same mind. Building up speed, it's making it more emphatic. Three of a kind. Seem, seems a bit like poker, actually. Three of a kind's a good hand. It's lucky. Could have got there by skill. It means you're going to win. Well, you hope you're going to win with three of a kind. If you get beaten with three of a kind, Lady Luck is not with you. But I swear, the open fire is shocking. It's got the full stop, definitely done. After all of this long listing, open fire. And I swear, time stands still. We've got the Matrix-style bullet time. Everything goes slow-mo. I see every round as it rips through his life. Life, body, the embodiment of life. He's gone from we, 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 we to I, I, I. He doesn't literally see broad daylight on the other side. So researching this, this is something called hyperrealism. And that means when you've seen something so many times, it becomes more than reality. So uh, I went to New York last summer and I'd never been to New York before. And I've seen like Friends, Harry Met Sally, Yellow Cabs, like this image in my mind of New York. And I got there and it was kind of difficult to process because it became, it felt normal because I'd seen it so many times. Like it was weird feeling. The broad daylight on the other side though, cartoons, how many times have you seen that? cartoon or like a sci-fi movie and the bullet goes through and you see straight through. That's what he's talking about, like he's familiar and he's completely unfamiliar. I also think if you look at the clip that I got that audio from, the soldier is really young. I have a theory that this soldier is little. I think he's almost a teenager because you can join the army when you're 16. These cartoonish comparisons. He takes all the blame on himself and he doesn't really know what he's done. We hit the looter a dozen times. He doesn't even know he's the one who's killed him. Like, for all they know, it's one guy out of the three. Like, he doesn't even know he's done it, but he assumes he has. It's so weird. Sort of inside out. He doesn't really have the words to say it. It's unpoetic. It's approximate. 
it's like he's looking at it, but he can't really find the words to say it. Pain itself, the image of agony, gets more slow, more shocking, this paused moment. Hyperbole, this soldier is experiencing the first time. This is true agony. It's really interesting because one of the things I was reading says that this almost creates like a 3D impression and I'm imagining it's like a film set or one of those like crime reconstructions where you see the guy walk in or something. We've got the pain, we've got the ground, like it seems like he's creating the full sensory impression. One of my mates goes by, is he your mate if he's just murdered a person? and tosses his guts back into his body. Dehumanised, disgusting, also childish, because a little kid might say, I've got a gut sake. Yeah, doesn't have the scientific words, because I think he's a kid. Then he's carted off in the back of a lorry. Carted off, the only way thinking that my elderly cockney dad would say that would be if someone was sectioned so if an ambulance turned up someone was held and taken with them unwillingly carted off like it's actually quite shocking but it's the only time that i've ever really heard that phrase used it's also an allusion to a-l-l-u-s-i-o-n by the way not eyes not magic it's an allusion almost to wilfred owen because in his poem dulce et decorum est they've got this bit where the soldier breathes in the gas and he's like puking green like in the exorcist and he gets flung on the back of a wagon it's really similar and if he is directly referring back to dulce et decorum est the main memory of that poem is you know it's a sweet and noble thing to die for your country no it bloody isn't sorry I'm allowed to say that because it's in the poem. But yeah, it's this thing of, did he, is it, was it a sweet and noble thing he did if he's in the army? No, it wasn't. Ooh, things to think about. End of the story. Not really. The blood shadow is fixed. Literally like the outline of the body, like a bloodstain. Could be the memory, could be a lingering memory and a metaphor. And out on patrol, I walk right over it week after week. Full stop, then I'm home on leave. All right, normally home on leave is a good thing, right, you're taking a holiday. But the sudden change in place is interesting because is that bit the boring bit that he just skips in this story? And then, you know, then I went to the shops and this. But anyway, I was home on leave. Has he lost time? Has he has an absence and can't remember anything else? Has he sped up the time again? Is it making... Is it the shocking move? To me, it kind of signals a breakdown, but again, that's just me, that's my baggage. Just a note before I go on, people are obsessed with giving fictional characters medical diagnoses. We can confidently say that this uh, soldier has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in the same way that some of Owen's characters do. But be very careful when you're using medical terms lightly, unless you are a doctor, because PTSD is a very complex condition. And using it as kind of a shortcut to explain things is, number one, lazy in your analysis, peeps. And number two, more than a little bit disrespectful to genuine sufferers. Saying that he was traumatised or processing the memory or suffering from the physical effects of war or dealing with addiction, yeah, that's cool. Be careful if you're giving people diagnoses unless you are listening to this and you are an actual doctor. Right, back on track. But I blink. Plosive. But, but, 
short sentences. Repetition from the start, everything is circling round and round and round again. Blink, sleep, dream. It's almost like eat, sleep, is it like eat, sleep, rave, repeat? You know, it's going round and round and round and round. It's, you know, probably armed, possibly not. Comes in again, just like, it's just going round and round and round and round in a circle. Think about flush. Drinking the drugs won't flush him out. Well, yeah, addiction, it's a terrible thing. Many veterans, many people dealing with PTSD will try to self-medicate. But flush out like a disease, like getting your stomach pumped like waste that you put down a toilet like a virus like semantic field of military supported by dug in behind enemy lines if you flush someone out it's because you've got a um like someone hiding a criminal and then you like close in on them till they have to run it's the analogy of the soldier that he's now combating his own memories drinking drugs won't flush him out Dash, interruption, some distant, sun-stunned, sand-smothered, sibilance. Alright, is it the sand blowing and the sensory impression of the desert? Is it sinister? Six feet under? Yeah, normally if you said someone six feet under, it's not just that they're dead, but they're buried in a funeral. Is it a regret that he didn't give him a funeral? Is it a regret that actually his funeral was being stuck in a lorry? Is it that thinking of a corpse at the bottom of a corpse pile? I don't know about these things. We get some huh sounds coming in towards the end. Here, his hands. It can build up the impression that he's breathing heavily. <sighs> Could be panic. Reliving what happened. Could be he's running out of breath. Could be he's so desperate to tell us. Near to the knuckle, here and now. I, I don't know, the impression I always got, which again, this is just my baggage. It always feels like he's punching the walls and he's got the blood on his knuckles where he's hurt himself trying to get this frustration out. But there's no actual evidence of that. That's just how I see it. Bloody life in my bloody hands. It feels rehearsed. It feels like he's made that joke. It's not, it's not like a proper joke, but it's just gallows humour. It's creepy to finish on. And maybe if it's rehearsed, we get a sense this speaker has said it again and again and again to himself, to therapists, to anyone who will listen. It's desperate. The blood, blood thing at the end it almost gives us these echoes of Macbeth you know where Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking she goes out damn spot and like is obsessed with blood who'd have thought the old man would have so much blood in him and even though it's concluded in this couplet we don't really have a resolution it's just the end of the scene it's creepy old poem creepy old poem I like that actually it is a difficult thing because I very much with the way I was brought up is I always wear the poppy I very much support people's decision to fight for their country whether I support the army in general is a separate question but I also really like this because the number one killer of young men under 30 is suicide and fantastic organisations like CALM the campaign against living miserably are trying to draw awareness of this and trying to make young men more open to getting help and the fact that we have this male character addressing 
his problems openly. That is a fantastic thing. Big up to Armitage. As I said earlier, the sense of realism and the like, almost like little bits of humour at the end. It's also a question. Because I mean, that is so Armitage. But this is a poem that leaves us questions. Well, the looter was doing something wrong. The soldier didn't even blooming know whether he did it. Like... Does he deserve it? Well, he might have killed someone. He might have not. He was in the army. We don't know. It's a very poem full of questions. Terms of friends. Right. Friends, in terms of talking about memory. Yeah. Poppies. Reactions after the war. War photographer. Emigre. Emigre so much in terms of memory. Bayonet in terms of negative presentation of soldiers. Owen, yeah, yeah, exposure. I'd do that one. Light Brigade as being the antithesis because at no point is this soldier presented as noble or heroic or anything like that. So I could make a nice pairing. It would work nicely with memory or soldiers or death or even power because who has the power soldier at the start or the people who sent him out and looter by the end but is the looter even really there he's built up as this enemy character i don't know i said poem full of questions sorry not sorry for this being a long cast because it is a long one but i'm enjoying this we're coming up to the end of the first season of the straight talking english project and i'm very close to the end of doing all the anthology poems so plug 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 right str8 talk english on twitter if you go there you'll see a link pinned to the top for my revision guide I've written. Oh my God, this is literally my hashtag life goals. It's a comic book that does the context for Jekyll and Hyde. You can download it for 75p or if you want a real one, like a paper one, it's a quid plus postage. Get it. I think it's really good. Let me know what you think. I am writing a bit more this week so I've got some time off. Straighttalkingenglish.wordpress.com. Keep listening to this podcast because as I say, as I'm getting close to the end of the first season on the poems, I will be announcing where I am going with the next couple of seasons. It is looking very exciting right now. If you want to drop me a line, str8talkingenglish at gmail.com let me know your feedback let me know if you need anything please address realism address truth and don't shoot anyone in a desert have a lovely week